I definitely, definitely paved the way for every reality star to mon- use it as a platform to monetize it. I was really the first book, for, certainly the first Housewives book, the first New York Times bestseller, the first cocktail, the first monetizer, the first everything, that's for sure. I had my eye on the price from the minute I got in there. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, this show might sound a bit different today because we're skimming from three different couches. The skim is still working from home for the time being because of COVID-19. Today, Bethany Frankel joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the founder and CEO of Skinny Girl, a company that offers lifestyle solutions for women. But you also know her name from her time as a cast member on The Real Housewives of New York and as a guest shark on Shark Tank. Bethany, we have followed your career for years. We are so excited to have you with us today. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, So we're going to start the show with our question that we open every show with, which is skim your resume for us. God, a resume. I've never really, I haven't had a resume in so many years, but I would say entrepreneur, author, mom, philanthropist, entertainer, I guess, TV media personality, podcast proprietor. (laughs) One thing we wanted to say actually from the beginning was that our chief of staff is from Puerto Rico and her family is there. And she wanted to thank you for the work associated with Be Strong. Um, And she raised about $30,000 for the Global Empowerment Mission and just wanted to thank you for the work that you did there. So wanted to make sure that I said that from the top. Oh, that's amazing. We promised Cynthia we would tell you. So obviously for those of us like Danielle and myself, who have watched you for years on TV and, and have studied your, you um, as a businesswoman, we feel like we know everything there is to know about Bethany, but that's probably impossible. So what is something that we can't Google about you or that we haven't seen on TV that we should know? I think people, I don't know if I'm seen as a homebody. I mean, the pandemic hasn't been that different for me from like a landlocked being home perspective at all. I say I'm 90% homebody, 10% lunatic, but it's really probably 95% homebody. That was one of the things that was probably good about reality TV for me. It gave me a reason to wear my clothes. It gave me a reason to put makeup on. And Well, I think that you fit in really well with Danielle and I. We are also big homebodies and our lives have not changed that much. <laughs> I'm not really that social. I'm sort of antisocial in a way. I um, have a very, very tight circle and I like it that way. And I really don't let people in and I really don't knock wood, get burned. And I just don't spread myself too thin. I don't, I don't connect dots. It's so funny. People, people are dot connectors and they don't even realize it where they're just like, oh, I just saw this person and they were doing that. And did you go there? Did you see, like people always want to know what you're doing, what information and connecting dots about you. And I'm not a dot connector at all. I just, I don't need to provide any extra information than is required. I love that phrasing because it does describe a lot of people that I know. So one of the things that I think is, you know, you've been so honest about 
is how you grew up. You know, you've spoken about your childhood, being raised around the racetrack, and you've talked about how that upbringing influenced your understanding of business. How did that frame the hustle that you clearly have? I mean, it's only what we can speculate. I can't know because I didn't live any other life in any other environment, but I know that I grew up very quickly. I was going to nightclubs when I was 13 years old, getting myself in, handling myself. I used to go from my house in Long Island into the city and take the train in. And, you know, I was just living like an adult when I was 13 years old, but handling myself. I worked at the racetrack. I was a hot walker, which meant that when the horses come off the track after they've exercised, I would you walk them, you give them a bath, and then you walk them um, around the shed row until they cool down. And so I was working. I was a hot walker at the racetrack when I was like probably like seven, if I had to guess, six or seven, and then until later in my life. And I used to spend the days at the racetrack. So around gambling, going up to the betting window myself, meeting all kinds of different crazy unsavory characters. This isn't like the fancy wearing hat Kentucky Derby part of the racetrack. This is what they call the backside. My father was a horse trainer. So you're hanging out with jockey agents and bookies, jockeys themselves and grooms. And it's very gritty. And the racetrack itself is about gambling. I mean, that's the whole thing. So that's how they make their money. So you're basically growing up. It's like growing up in a casino. And in fact, we used to go to Vegas again when I was like 13 years old and I would be going to the craps tables. And so I just had a very non-traditional life, very, very young. And it was really all that I knew. A lot of violence in my house and, you know, drinking and just fighting and just being an adult as a kid. You're describing yourself as, you know, a mini adult. But when I think about the Bethany that we see, like in, from a public facing perspective, you appear fearless, you appear very self-protective and you clearly know how to, to hustle in, in, in the best way possible. Like, you know how to make magic and a business out of something, but what was your personality like as a kid? Were you shy? Were you the extrovert? I think I was like a miniature version of myself now. I think I was an extrovert. I think I was good. My mother told me that I only had one tantrum ever in my childhood and it was in a mall because I wanted a Winnie the Pooh stuffed animal. And like, that was the only time. And it's funny because my daughter's never had a tantrum. Even as a baby, she's never had one tantrum. She's just not that person. I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg. I'm pretty strict and, you know, I'm tough. But so I think I was probably a miniature version of myself now, like, vulnerable and silly and funny and creative, but tough. And I knew what I wanted, I think. I mean, this isn't being a little kid, but basically I'm surprised to hear my friends from college say that they weren't, they reach out to me years later. They weren't surprised at all that I always knew I wanted to do something and I knew I was going somewhere. And so I, I didn't, I didn't know that I portrayed that or was even talking about it in college. So I guess I just always was sort of a woman with a purpose. You ended up diving into a lot of different ventures. You had a pashmina business. You had Bethany Bakes. What's clear in, in you know, our research and what we already knew is like if one thing didn't work out, you would still bet on yourself and move right on to the next thing. Exactly. Where does that perseverance come from? Like, How do you not get discouraged and how did you kind of keep the creative juices going? I don't know when that, that's a skill, that's like a knife that needs to be sharpened and a tool that needs to be like, that's a skill that needs to be honed. That I just acquired, that just sort of kept growing. I, I'm not really sure because 
I remember being a little kid and I wanted to be an actress. And so I used to look up in the phone book actress and like had to do that. And, it, you know, they didn't have social media then or anything like they do now. And, and then I just was always sort of curious and trying to figure out, I just had always had passion and desire and wanted to do something interesting. I wanted to be somebody and wanted to make a mark. And so I think I just kept trying different ways, but it was like throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing if it sticks because I had no guidance. I had no one to take care of me. I had no one to guide me. I had no one to help me. So I just sort of was like wandering and trying one thing and then trying something else. But I was always, always trying. And it's why in my book, A Place of Yes, I write about just, you need to be on the road moving forward. You can hit a roadblock and you could run out of gas, but like be in the car. And, and I believe in building the car while driving it. I'm not a big, like, I never had a business plan. I never sat down with any sort of plan for anything. I just, I'm going. But did you know at the time, like what you were going towards? Like, where was that car no. going? Was it for money? Was it for fame? No. Like, what was driving you? It was a little bit of fame. Not fame though. We didn't know of fame when I was a kid. Like some people were famous, but fame wasn't what it is now. Fame is different now than it was then. Like fame, so many people can have fame for so many different things. You could be a fucking beekeeper and be famous for like bees and you could be famous for makeup now and you'd be famous for doing for everything. Every It's such a narcissistic culture now that everybody's a brand for some other thing. It's just ridiculous. But so then like, you know, starlets were famous. I mean, that was pretty much what, that was it. I, I didn't know. And that's why I try to tell people because you're trying to do takeaway here. I try to tell people, I never knew. I still don't exactly know. And so that should make people feel comforted because not until I was in my late thirties did I start achieving success. I was still sort of wandering. I had been a natural food chef. I had been on The Apprentice. I had done pashminas. I had sold out because I was trying to act, but didn't think I was very good or it felt confining. And then thought, how do I just be myself? That that thought came to me in um, LA when I was like 25. Like, how do I be myself? That's what I'm going to do well at. That's what I'm, that's everybody I know knew thought I was entertaining and hilarious and, you know, edgy, but like, what is that? There was no vehicle for that. There were no reality shows. There was nothing like the way you can express yourself now. So I wouldn't be a TV host. That would be very confining. So how do I do that? But it was just a thought. It wasn't like a driven thing. I just was trying different things. So when I sold out, it was when I decided to, I had to get a job. I mean, like I said, no one's taking care of me, no one's supporting me. So I was producing events and I was really good at that. I'm really good at putting all the pieces together and, and making a profit and a creative vision and executing massive events like the rock movie premiere, which was, which was the first event they ever did. And it was a million dollar event on actual, actually on Alcatraz. So I was just very good at anything I did. And I didn't do it if I wasn't going to be good at it. It's interesting. Cause you started the, this episode saying, you know, you're not, you, you don't like the, I forget exactly how you said it, but like connecting the dots. Like you're not that person being like this person saying, you know, so-and-so they're working on this. Like, you know, you should connect with this person, but you can say that now, like, obviously you've, achieve success. But back then, like to get, you know, that premiere to, to get kind of your foot in the door everywhere. How did you do that tactically? And how did you do that in a way that allowed you to stay true to who you are? Uh, I networked, I networked. I used one thing to get to the next thing. I networked. I babysat and took Paris and Nikki to and from school. Wait, what? I did not know that. Kathy Hilton says I was their nanny, which make, made me feel good because when I was coming up, it was like a great street cred thing. I was sort of like a girl Friday. I just would go to the store and wrap presents in her store called The Staircase. 
And then I would go pick up Paris and Nikki to, and take them to and from school. It wasn't like I was sitting home every Saturday night eating popcorn babies and I was just sort of like doing errands and, you know, being her sort of half assistant. Cause I was also working for Lynette and Jerry Bruckheimer as an assistant too. How'd you get your foot into those jobs? Just totally. I was meant to be in the right place because I was working at La Scala, the chopped salad restaurant and met Kyle Richards because I was dating this actor, Lewis, and I was in his house and he had talked about his ex-girlfriends, plural, but one of them he said was this girl, Kyle. So La Scala is like a famous iconic restaurant in Beverly Hills where they invented the chopped salad and every writer, producer, actor, everybody, every rich person goes, goes through there. And I just walked off the street and asked for a job. Kyle was there. Kathy Hilton used to come in and they were fixtures in, in Beverly Hills and at La Scala. I went up to her and I connected a dot. That was different. That was so many years ago. And I said, are you Kyle? And then we connected and we became friends. And throughout the friendship, then her sister needed somebody to work for her. So that's how I got that job. And the girl who was Linda and Jerry Bruckheimer's assistant, I met her through I don't know who. And she was going away to Paris and she was scared to tell them she was leaving. So she asked me if I could fill in for her. But these people were just totally random jobs that I got. It wasn't because I was like hunting down people that were going to be the future most famous people in the world. I love those stories because I think it is, you know, the real story of how people get their their feet in the door. So you were approached to join the Real Housewives. And at the time it was called Manhattan Moms. Um, why'd you decide to do it? And I, I ask because I remember watching that season and one thing, I think it was the first season, I can't remember if it was first or second, but that totally stands out to me was when you had the car that you had branded and you were driving it around the Hamptons. And I remember watching that and being like, that is so smart. When Carly and I started the skim, we would sneak into like Equinox and Starbucks and get kicked out for leaving flyers around the skim and wore our t-shirts and well, no, actually, we talked about getting a car and painting it with the skim like you did. That was a standout moment in my mind. And watching it at home, I felt like there was such a difference from at least, you know, being a viewer at home, why you were on that show and what you were trying to get out of it versus what other people wanted to get out of it. So what made you interested in it? So I had been on The Apprentice years ago, not The Celebrity Apprentice, The Regular Person Apprentice with Martha Stewart. It wasn't a huge success because no one wanted to watch Martha. It was a failure. At that time, 11 million viewers was a failure because I guess Apprentice was getting 30, 40 million viewers, but that was a failure. And it sort of was like a dry sponge that I tried to squeeze to get something out of through press, through Life and Style magazine, whatever I could get about being Paris and Hilton's nanny, having cooked for Mariska Hargitay. In that way, back then, I was hustling and I was connecting dots. Any little, tiny little shred I would do. I remember the first time I ever got on the Today Show, I was with Hoda and I crushed it. I was hustling, figuring it out. You're young, you don't have a kid, you just have that energy, that fuel, that you're poor, that you just... You don't care if you get knocked down. You don't have any shame. You're just, you know, connecting with everybody. You're, I was cooking. I was, I'm a natural food chef. I was a natural food chef long before it was a cool thing. That was in 2001. I used to cook for free, do anything. Like I would do anything to get 
anywhere. And, you know, I, I cooked for an entire summer for Jason Bin, the creator of Hamptons Magazine and Ocean Drive, for 100 people at his house just to get, like, a quarter of a page in Hamptons Magazine. I mean, it was not a joke. So... I was then on The Apprentice, but it was like, who cares? You know, it wasn't like a big deal. I was trying to get on TV and I, I convinced this one agent after being turned down a million times to represent me. And so we were going around and we were meeting about possibly I wanted to do sort of like Survivor meets a cooking show or I had a bunch of different ideas. At the same time, I still had my Bethany Bakes cookie company, we Egg and Dairy Free Cookie Company. And my um, boyfriend at the time used to be like, hustle, keep hustling it. So there's an event, it's called Polo in the Hamptons. It's like a social event where people go watch Polo. I've never seen a horse or Polo there. Everyone's just there to be a douchebag and schmooze. <laughs> so, um, you know, I got myself in there and I walked in and I had my juicy terry cloth shorts outfit with a hood and I walked in and I wasn't feeling good and I didn't want to go that day. And Jill Zarin, who had approached me at a movie premiere months before because she, you know, knew I was in The Apprentice and she loves to be near any sort of shine, and it was really a reach because I was nobody. She had talked to me about it. And then she walked up to me when I walked into Polo and said, how'd you get the gift bag bracelet? How'd you get the gift bag bracelet? And I, you, know, you skinny bitch. I'll never forget it. She, you skinny bitch. How'd you, where do you, how do you get the gift bag bracelet? Which is like so true to character, little what I know. So she said, we're doing a show. The producers are here. We're doing a reality show. And it's called Manhattan Moms, and it's about moms and getting their kids into schools and whatever. And then she pulled, she's a connector. So she pulled me over and introduced me to one of the producers. But the interesting fact, and Andy wrote about that, Andy Cohen wrote about this in his book, is that the reason that she brought a producer there, which isn't really that kosher, you know, she brought a producer there because the show hadn't been bought yet. Bravo had said that they could shoot a pilot, I think, to the production company, Ricochet, but that they wanted five moms and they only had four. And the production company thought, "Who cares? it's good, let's use the four. And Bravo said, no, we need the fifth mom. So they were going to stop it and shut it down because they had gone through everybody in the Hamptons and in New York. And so Jill took the producer that day to Polo in the hands to the Hamptons and said, we're going to find a housewife. So that's why she and Bobby walked up to me. She was desperate. She was a woman on the verge. She needed this show. So that was this moment that this woman walked, she walked up to me and I started talking to the woman and I was there with my boyfriend who, we were just bullshitting, it meant nothing, who cared? And then the woman was really interested in me and she wanted me to be on the show. But my boyfriend didn't really want to be on the show and I was thinking about these other shows we were pitching and something credible and serious in the cooking space, which is all I wanted to do. So I was very hesitant and nervous and didn't love it. So I didn't, I kept shying away from it. And then they really wanted me, like really wanted me. And this girl, Kira, kept calling me. And so it was a weird game because she was pursuing me and I filmed the, the test tape the following week, but I was sort of backing away. At the same time, Andy Cohen didn't want me at all. So she was pushing me and pulling me and I was pulling away. And Andy Cohen was saying, no, they didn't want anyone who had a pre-existing profile. So I had already been on The Apprentice, which is a joke now because everybody, the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills has four actresses on it. So the whole franchise has certainly changed. So back then, Andy did not want me. And I just kept away from it. I kept thinking about it. And so I called up that producer, Kira, to be like, are you guys still filming? Like, what's happening? Like, just checking in with an ex-boyfriend to see if he was sleeping with somebody else yet. I, I said to myself, you know what? It's not that easy to get on TV. I'm a natural food chef. If it doesn't do well no one will hear about it. And if it does do well, you know, great. I didn't even know what doing well could mean. 
So I just decided to do it. And I decided I was going to be a natural food chef. And my boyfriend was like, just be cooking all the time and talking about food. And that's what you are. And once it got started, I said, you know what? I'm going full Monty. I'm going to totally be myself. And if I'm doing this, I'm doing it. And here we go. So I did it. And I remember from the first season, I was quoted saying at the first season that these other women are buying, getting facials and buying diamonds and showing off fake cars that they don't own. And I came in straight up for one reason and to use it as a platform. And no one understood that. And not until like the second or third year were, were people calling me and Jill being like, what do I do? What do I have? What do I be? I, I don't want, you know, scrambling because they knew they were wasting time. And so I definitely, definitely paved the way for every reality star to mon- use it as a platform to monetize it. I was really the first book, for certainly the first Housewives book, the first New York Times bestseller, the first cocktail, the first monetizer, the first everything. That's for sure. I had my eye on the prize from the minute I got in there. So I have a lot of questions. I think first is, I think Danielle and I know what it is like to want something so bad, hustle to get your your product, your brand in front of whomever you can get it in front of. But I also think like we're both like very private people and I can't imagine putting my personal life on center stage as part of my business. And I'm just so curious how that transition was for you and, and did you have concerns around it? I had nothing going on. Like, what the hell was I? Who gives a shit about my life? I'm just me, you know? That's not private to me. Like, I can't explain it. Peeing on a stick is not private to me. It's like, who cares? It's peeing on a stick. What's private is like my feelings about things, my strategy, my way my mind works, my emotional intelligence, how the sausage gets made. Like, fodder isn't that private to me. You asked in the beginning about people don't know about me that I'm intensely private, beyond private. I tell no one nothing. No one knows what I get paid, what I got paid by Bravo. No one. It's a multi-million dollar question, but no one knows. I don't tell anybody anything. So I'm super private, but like telling someone how I feel and assessing their character in a scene is not really that private to me. I guess talking about what's going on in a relationship, but I I don't go all the way, I guess. I, I mean, it's more like if it's helping other people, you should go through it. I don't know. I just feel like I know what's private to me and it might not be what everybody else thinks is private because I somehow have managed to have a very private life and still be on reality television. It's something to navigate for sure. I want to talk about Skinny Girl, which obviously you grew into an enormous venture that you sold to Beam. And there are two things that I want to talk about specifically with Skinny Girl and negotiating. I did not sell it to be. I only sold Skinny Girl cocktails. I own 100% right. of the brand besides cocktails. That was going to be my question, actually, was <laughs> to have you talk about how you retain the IP to Skinny Girl. It's a brilliant move. Is that something that you went into the deal thinking about? Is it something that you negotiated along the way? And I ask it from a tactical perspective because I think when people are negotiating, They tend to think about the top line price and not necessarily the long-term implications. So I have always gone with my gut instinct. I had never signed a contract, read a contract. I don't know, you know, I did not know how to turn on this computer today to do the Zoom call. I know exactly what I know. I know exactly what I don't know, okay? So I had some lawyer that could have been a veterinarian for all I know. I paid him $250 an hour. It should be like a thousand, but I just had some joker being my lawyer. Okay. Cause I just, I just needed to have a lawyer. So when I went on the housewives, the only thing I knew was that I was, the, the money was $7,250, but I read through whatever I was signing. And I just, 
I don't know why I had the gut instinct to realize because it changed the course of the entertainment industry and it's called the Bethany Clause, which was that I crossed out anything that said that they could take a piece of my business. So I didn't care about the $7,250 for the whole season. I cared about that they could take a piece of my business. So I took that out. What did they know? They never did the Housewives before and I was the original monetizer. So, so when I later did the Skinny Girl deal, which I'm going to get into, it was on the cover of Forbes and it was in the Hollywood Reporter and like Bravo was freaking out because it just made them look like they hadn't, because they hadn't taken, they hadn't gotten part of that. And it changed the entertainment industry because it's called the Bethany Clause. It's referred to with agents, the Bethany Clause, that me like I ruined it for everybody. So if you sign on to do a reality show, an unscripted show, you got to give the network a piece of whatever you're doing. That was an example of just reading something and saying, hmm, that doesn't feel right inside. So when we created Skinny Girl and I had a partner, the logo I designed myself was my idea and I wanted it to look like a Veronica version of me, like a cartoon version of me. But my partner and I had someone do it for us. So like I, we registered it together as in Skinny Girl Cocktails, the girl. If you look on you Google Skinny Girl and you see the girl, that caricature, we registered it together. I registered Skinny Girl the name myself. So I owned the name and we owned the mark together. Now, I didn't even know I owned the name. I didn't even remember that I registered the name. I don't even know why I was smart enough to do that. We have Shark Tank now to thank for like people realizing stuff like that, but that was all completely Japanese to me. I was starting to talk about other people to other people about doing other deals. I always thought Skinny Girl would be cute on jeans and other things I was doing. I did a uh, my shapewear deal and my uh, protein uh, bar deal and other deals. And I realized that in order to use that girl, I had to ask my partner because we had registered the girl together. So I didn't like that feeling because he wanted to celebrate. He wanted to cash out. It's a long story about him, but he, this was his one rodeo and he had never really made any big money. And so he wanted to cash out. So we had two different goals. I wanted to build the whole brand. I don't like asking anyone permission. So that was on the side. I got approached by Beam to buy Skinny Girl Cocktails. I was aware that they wanted to do a skinny salsa, which obviously isn't sexy and wouldn't be as good, but they're a big, big multi-billion dollar company. I was aware in my mind that like Cuervo is going to come in and copy this idea. And this is too good of an idea. People are going to copy it. I have one, one flavor, one skew at this time, developing another one, but it was taking another six months. We can't move at, at lightning speed. We're two people. And so I was thinking about that too. They're going to come in, they're going to copy me. So the pop point is if the big monster comes in and does it bigger, you're fucked. And if you can't afford to be sued and if you don't have, you, you're, you know, just one person who was broke, had $8,000 to their name when they went on the housewives, you got to make some moves. So when they came to buy, I was emotional about it, but I thought to myself, I'm going to get swallowed up here. So what do I do? So I was considering it. I just, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. In the meantime, I was thinking about that logo that I wanted. So the deal was good, etc. I start to read the contract. It went on for months and months. And I do two things that were just pure gut instinct. No lawyer told me I had the most expensive lawyers now, but nobody told me, spent a million dollars in legal. Nobody gave me any of this advice. That was my idea, the best things I ever did. So just don't assume that your doctor, your travel agent, your lawyer is smarter than you because they're not. Don't, that's an, also a chapter in my book. Never assume anyone's smarter than you. So what I did was I said to myself, okay, Beam owns liquor only. They only do liquor. A liquor company was buying a liquor brand. Why do they need to keep all my other stuff? Why do they need to own it and everything? So I had the idea, they can have it, but they can have it in cocktails, which is very, has unprecedented, has never happened before or since because then they don't control the brand. 
So it had to be a real quid pro quo trust back and forth. And I would say, I said, fine, you can't use skinny girl and have some bimbo holding a six pack on a beach in a bikini. And I wrote that literally that language and I can't go, you know, be a brand skinny girl firearms. So basically I got them to agree to, which had never happened before to pay me all this money, but I kept the brand. And also I knew that they were going to spend millions and millions of dollars a year to market something that I own. So that was, I, I'm going to say that was nothing short of genius. I didn't even know I was so brilliant when I did it. I just, it was just an idea, but I didn't know until later when I was like, what are you talking about? You didn't sell the whole brand. I'm like, no. So I kept the whole pizza. In addition, by selling to them, it extricated me from my partner. He gets his money and I get that girl back. So that was part of the deal that got that check, that box. But then most importantly, I didn't do it because of the money. I did it because of what I said before. I didn't want to get swallowed. I did it for the street cred. I'm like, this will put me on the map. I had $8,000. I went on the show. I did this. I turned this brand in 18 months. I turned a brand like this for this kind of number. And I still own the whole thing. So like take some money off the table and then go back, you know, play with the house's money. So that's the whole story about that. And also the other thing I did in the contract was I said, well, I don't have to mark. They want to be, be a spokesperson for seven figures a year for like 10 years, which is great. So I said, great, I'll market it, but I don't have to market anything I don't want. Like if you want to do, uh, you know, vodka, which they did, then I don't have to market that. You can do it. You own the brand, but I don't have to be the spokesperson for that. I'll be the spokesperson for these things that I agree with now. So they said, fine. So lo and behold, a year later, we want to do vodka. I said, great, go do vodka. Well, we need you to approve. Well, I, we want you to be the spokesperson for it. I said, well, that's a touching story. You have to pay me. They're like, you ready? We already bought the brand. And I go, well, good, do it yourself. So I double dipped. It wasn't for crazy money. It was definitely over the course of years, definitely millions of dollars. It wasn't hundreds of millions of dollars, but it was change, a, lot of, a lot of change on the floor. So I went back in and double dipped. Do you ever get nervous that they'll walk away or that you're over asking? I wasn't really over asking. If the, the brand was doing what we were doing then today, it would be a much bigger number based on what's going on. They needed it. It was a shortcut to get right in and they needed it because they needed, they needed to appeal to women. I was the first alcohol brand that ever appealed to women, ever spoke to women. They needed that. And I ended up seeing what they did. They folded it in so they could make it look attractive when they were selling to, to Suntory. Now, I didn't know that, but I was also willing to walk away. I was emotional about it. I, didn't, I thought we could go way further. And the day before, a million dollars into legal fees. And I said to my partner, I don't know if I want to do it. He goes, so he won't do it. And the day after I did the deal, I realized that I had checked the wrong box in um, either being an LLC or an S-Corp or whatever I was, something because, because Bravo had to pay me in a certain way, so I changed it. And it would if I checked the other box, the only thing I would have been checking the other box as a corp, S-Corp or an LLC, I forget what it was. I'm going to be backwards about it. I think I now was an S-Corp and I checked that box. Millions and millions of dollars I left on the table because of a tax thing. Couldn't go back the day after I the day after I signed the paper and get the money. I realized so you know you got to know your shit and it's hard to know it all. You have to be very very savvy and it's impossible because you're poor. So how are you going to be savvy when you're poor? You don't you can't afford lawyers. You don't know anything. So it's really hard. So you got to do the best you can. It's such a remarkable story and it's something like I'm listening to you talk and I'm literally just smiling because I'm like, this is just such an amazing, an amazing like instinct driven success story where like you did do your homework and like you also like didn't listen to people when it wouldn't, wouldn't have been helpful. We talk a lot on the show about like following gut and the power of instinct. 
When you have those like gut feelings, those instinctual moments, how do you know when it's that versus like you're getting in your head or how do you recognize that it's gut and don't let fear get in the way of that? It's so, cause it's not clear until it's clear and then it's clear, but you have to massage the dough and work it through and go around and not know and not know. And then all of a sudden it happens to me between sleep and wake. Every good name for everything. I have every idea that I have, not every idea. So many ideas happen like when I'm still sleeping and I'm awake and I just like sort of, it comes into fruition. Coming back to the show when I came back, leaving the show when I left, all of that was like gut, but it was, I was never going back to the show the first time. And then Andy came to my kitchen and I was so gangster about the way that I said, I want one number, you give me an offer and it's a number and it's one time and I'm not negotiating. This is not a game. You come in with the highest you guys have in your piggy bank and that's it. And then I, they did that. And then I said, should I go back? Should I not? I just had one more run in me. But then when I left too, I was then at another level of, of money, a next level, a game changer. And that's a lot for me because I have, you know, I'm financially successful, but it was just, you could have, but to earn, it's about earning and, 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 um, versus just like having your savings. And I just said, you know what? You got to know when to fold them and when to hold them. But it doesn't matter if you make the right decision. There's no right. You make a decision and then you make that decision work. Is it right that I left? Who, who knows? It was a lot of money. My business manager's like, how are you walking with that money for four months? I'm like, I have a plan. I have a vision. It, it, it has to be right because it's what, what happened. When you talk about having a vision, what's, what do you want next? What's exciting for you? Well, I have a podcast too. I've never listened to a podcast. And I um, was really, I was, the radio worked for me. I was pretty good at the radio. And so it was actually Andy Cohen. It was like, you need a podcast. You'd be great at this. And I didn't know what it was going to be. So I just didn't want it to be like fluffy. And are we talking about travel? Are we talking about all the things that I know about? What are we doing? And sort of just like getting into it now, it's all meat. The whole podcast is all meat. It's no foreplay. It's just right to the main act. It's no bullshit. It's, it's really good and it's amazing people. It's like, it's, go, it's going to be very successful. I just can feel it. So I'm loving that. My apparel brand is doing really well. I spend, it's doing really well and I spend more time on it than most other things. It's not the most lucrative thing. It's one bucket to kind of frame what the whole brand is doing. So I could sit around and sell $15 million worth of popcorn in a month and a half, popcorn in a month and a half during the pandemic and the same exact thing with the salad dressings. They, you don't have the same exact thing with the shapewear. And that's because I started so long ago that it finally just, the residuals just start kicking in. People just start knowing it and being familiar with it. And it's like, takes a while. It's like a restaurant. It just, a restaurant doesn't do well the first year. So I don't know why all of a sudden after like six, seven years, last year, the shapewear after doing fine was up like 220%. It just, things just click in. So then the sum is greater than its parts. So the reason I mentioned that about the apparel and my HSN world is because I, I make less than on apparel than I do on any of those other things, but it's really, I'm finessing it and I'm building a brand and it's gonna have so many different components to it that I can then decide what to do. And all of these slices of pizza coming together in this pie, each one is now doing really well. I don't have any, I have no, I have no dogs. Like I have no brands that are not doing well. And they're none of them are like $100 million brands. The whole thing together is, but each thing is just, doing so well and growing so much. And so I'm loving that as a holistic thing. So I'm enjoying the strategy of what I'm doing. Like I have a plan and I have no idea if it's going to work, but it seems like 
doing the opposite of what I did with Bean, which was just, I had the skinny girl cocktail and I just sold that one thing. Now I'm molding the whole thing collectively. So it's just like, oh my God, she's doing that and you're in that and all of these are making money and no one sees me coming again. I did it the first time and no one saw me coming. No one sees this brand coming and it's going to happen again. So we're going to ring the bell again. We're going to move on to our last round, our lightning round. What's the last show you streamed or binge watch? I finished Ozark. I'm doing Queen of the South. I can't binge because I'm with my daughter a lot of the time. So when I'm with my boyfriend, I watch Queen of the South. My daughter, believe it or not, I was watching Handmaid's Tale, like the last thing a 10-year-old would want to watch. (laughs) She was obsessed. My daughter is obsessed with Handmaid's Tale. So I know there's a lot of inappropriate stuff, but she didn't see those scenes because she didn't watch the first season. But she's obsessed with Handmaid's Tale. So I finished that, which is brilliant. What an amazing show. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Neither. I, I mean, I wake up early, but I'm not a morning person in that I don't, I don't want to be awakened at any time of the day. I, I need to sleep until I wake up. And that this morning, that was literally five o'clock. I woke up. I wake up at six o'clock. But if I'm sleeping, do not wake me. Nobody. There's nothing. Brad Pitt in a thong. Nothing <laughs> could wake. It does not matter. Leave me alone because it's not natural. I need to naturally wake up. So I don't want to be up late. I would prefer not to be up early. And when you get good news, who's your first call? It depends on what it is. Probably Paul or my friend, my best friend, Sarah, or my business managers or Jill Fritzo, a publicist who, who, who cares a lot about this stuff. It depends. Different. Who would you rather start a business with? You have three choices. Luann, Ramona, or Kelly? Ramona. <laughs> Why? Because she understands, she understands numbers in business and she's actually run a business and the other two haven't. Favorite housewives trip you've taken? Oh, Mexico. And I took them to Mexico by far. Bethany, thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 